Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Your Future. I am your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations into industry leaders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that today our guest host is Greg Moran and we we're going to talk about these trends that our organization identifies. Hi, thanks, Maureen. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. As uh, Maureen said, I'm Greg Moran and currently the Chief Operating Officer of AWARE. AWARE is a software uh, startup that serves the enterprise in the security, compliance, and insights and analytics space around specifically collaboration. My background is mostly in the corporate world as a C-level executive, primarily in IT, but also in business lines at uh, companies like Ford Motor Company and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, originally Bank One, and then uh, also Nationwide Insurance uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to uh, interview you, Maureen, about your annual trends discussion. And uh, why don't we just dive right in? Perfect. Thank you. So the first trend that you talk about in, in, in your uh, discussion this year is about the fact that disruption is accelerating. And the essence of that, as I read it, is organizations must embrace a disrupt or get disrupted ethos in their company. And strategic planning processes really must embrace evaluating opportunities to disrupt both internal and external business models. So as I thought about that, you know, so many people talk about the pace of change increasing. Is your point really about the pace of change, or do you see something deeper and more fundamental going on? And if you do, why do you think that might be? Okay, so I certainly do see the pace of change accelerating. And we've been talking about that for a long time, and there's nothing new in that trend. I think you make the point, though, that there is something new happening, and that is who's getting disrupted, how that change is being distributed, and how those accelerating disruptions will impact everything from some individual ecosystems to entire industries and that the people being impacted are no longer just people at the minimal skill set level. They are physicians and accountants and attorneys and people in high income brackets that have generally not been as impacted by the disruption in the way they will be going forward. So what's a good example that comes to mind for you? I, I certainly see the trend. And like if we just focused in on the medical world, mm-hmm. uh, you could imagine some changes that could impact even the sort of top of that period pyramid in terms of mm-hmm. the physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are some examples that come to mind for you? So an example is in the cancer space. Uh, I'm working with the Ohio State University and they're bringing in 
I believe it is one of the first electron pulse machines, and I am not the technical expert here. And in the next few years, also a a photon accelerator and cancer treatment approach. Assuming these machines do what they are expected to do, we will see people actually healing from cancer with a very different approach to treatment than we have in the past. That, again, this is a big assumption, I think, that that these things will happen, uh, but they we may have non-invasive, at least for some types of cancer, so it'll mean little or or no surgery, again, for some types of cancer. It will mean little or no radiation for some types of cancer. It'll mean little or no uh, chemotherapy. If that happens, imagine a world that is post-cancer. What does that mean for all of the people who've studied to be physicians? Now, everyone wants this to be cured, but if you happen to be midway through your medical education, that's a big investment that gets upended with potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt in the process. And that's the point. It's not whether, to me, in the conversation about this disruption, it's not whether or not it's cancer or IT staffing or and pick the field. It is that entire fields may be disrupted and the people getting impacted are up and down the value chain at this point. And as industries are disrupted and we have significant investment, hundreds of billions of dollars are right now invested in the cancer treatment uh, machine uh, ecosystem. We all want to live in a post-cancer world, but the transition from where we are to getting there is a significant disruption to the lives of a lot of people and a lot of economic wherewithal. Yeah, it's a great example. And I know we're going to spend a little time later in this discussion talking about skills mismatch in, mm-hmm. you know, in the face of disruption. Um, but moving on to just this whole concept of disruption inside of large organizations, very few companies and leaders are able to effectively be the agent of their own disruption. Uh, it, it's tough. Uh, What strategic planning tools would you advise clients embrace to at least bring self-disruption into the realm of explicit decision-making so that they're at least considering the possibility that they should be the agent of their own disruption? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because as you point out, somebody else is trying hard to disrupt you. So uh, one of the tools I really appreciate is this idea of scenario planning. And one of the questions I think I hear often is, do we need to even do strategic planning? because the world's changing so fast we don't we can't plan i think that is an inaccurate statement i think having a north star is absolutely required and having scenarios and looking at the more disruptive scenarios is also required so that we as the people running organizations are thinking through what are the likely disruptors, how do we respond, and that leaves us in a reactive state. If these things are happening, what is our proactive stance so that we can take advantage of the changes in the ecosystem and be the first or early to market rather than running after everyone else? 
Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, and the good news is those skills and those competencies aren't new ones, but they can mm-hmm. be deployed, as you're pointing out, in some new and unique ways, given the type of disruption that we're seeing. In some cases, the disruption is a new distribution channel. It's a new way of packaging what we've done. I'm not asserting that everyone's lives will be upside down. Even the the distribution of a new kind of cancer treatment will likely use the same building infrastructure, will use the same docs and nurses and hospital infrastructure. So much of that will stay the same. It may be fewer treatments and and then a path to health. So in some ways, we will leverage much of the investment we have, but what happens when we need, say, a quarter of the treatment rooms that we've used before? And assuming that this isn't the only thing, the only disease that is cured or close to cured, we're curing others as well. And the flip side of that is many of us will live to be well over 100 and we're going to have other stuff break. So it's a reallocation in many cases. So as I'm doing strategic planning, how am I thinking out to what's possible and what's plausible and what are the probabilities? And then how do I identify the signs? Because as we talk about, some people are thinking self-driving cars are five years away. I was in a conversation the other day where where, where technologists were saying it's really 20 years away before we, we have a, a critical mass. So... I know that this is going to happen, or I believe it's going to happen, but I I have to be paying attention to the warning signs, and that's where the strategic planning and scenario planning kicks in. I don't know. A lot of people, a lot of really smart people have different opinions. So as we're looking at our various scenarios, part of this, the process is what indicators do I watch for that tells me that scenario is now in play? Yeah, I think that's actually a great segue to kind of the second trend that you uh, you discussed in in your piece this year, which is around adaptive leadership. And the essence of that is really if the amplitude and frequency of disruptive change is increasing, leaders have to enhance and add to their competency mix to be able to offer organizations the leadership that's needed. This is less about being the best fill-in-the-blank business discipline, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the best accountant, the best engineer, the Mm -hmm. best salesperson, whatever, and more about transcendent competencies that can sense and respond to a broad array of stimuli, both threat and opportunity. you got to see both sides of that. Mm -hmm. So in, in light of that, given that this deeper cycle of profoundly disruptive change is increasing in both amplitude and frequency, Mm -hmm. what do you mean when you talk about focusing on the quality of leadership versus skill building? So for people who listen to me regularly, I talk about the leadership development maturity. So based on solid research of Keegan and Cookreuter and Torbert and and, uh, Harvard researchers and, and many others, they have mapped how leaders mature over time. And we do this at different paces. So what we look for is at an early stage, I'm going to look to be the biggest expert in my field, a shorter time horizon task focused. And then I integrate on top of having expertise. So I don't stop being competent at my thing, but I add to my skill set a broader level of influence, more complex set of problems I'm addressing. And that's, as leaders move through that cycle, they really move from also 
being focused on my discipline to as a senior executive. And Greg, you you have both made this transition and seen lots of people who have done it well and some who haven't, is I am both a member of the leadership team and my own discipline. And as a an effective executive who has stewardship for the enterprise, I need to be making enterprise-wide decisions considering what happens with my discipline, but I have to decide best for the enterprise. And I think that's one of the challenges we see in leaders, and there's a path to get there. And we look at things like Colonel Boyd and and his example of the OODA loop and developing processes for observe, orient, decide, and act. There are tools that we teach, either we in our personal work or other organizations, Peter Senge and Chris Argerus' systems thinking, very specific competencies that effective leaders must understand. When I see something happening within my system, I have to understand the, and we call it 360 degree thinking. I'm able to see the broader landscape, often industry wide and often cross geographic boundaries, including countries. And Greg, your work, I assume, has over the years had been significantly impacted internationally. And you probably developed systems thinking as a quite a young man. I certainly think that there uh, have been experiences that I've had growing up overseas. I grew up in Zambia as a missionary kid. My you know, parents were missionaries, and I went to a British boarding school growing up. And so a lot of my childhood experience was international. And then uh, as a professional, I've had opportunities to work mm-hmm. in Asia and in Europe as well as in, in the U.S. and South America. And I do think that broader exposure makes it easy for you to develop those competencies mm-hmm. because you're forced to grapple with things you haven't seen before and find out ways to process it. Mm-hmm. Maybe the deeper point is these models, these competencies, these tools do require practice. You actually have it, it doesn't something that hap- it isn't something that happens by osmosis. You get better at it by mm-hmm. adopting the set of practices and then putting them to use. And you know, Colonel Boyd would you know his his specialty was really as a as a pilot figuring mm-hmm. out how to win dogfights. You know, that's not something you want to read a paper on and then go into <laughs> battle, right? You, yeah. you, you really like Life some opportunity, <laughs> right? Just the consequences are high, and honestly, as you're pointing out, the consequences are pretty high for organizations as well. And so, the point that you're making that you've got to adopt these things and then you've got to put them to use and build muscle around them, so mm-hmm. that when there is a lot at stake. You have those skills in place. Well, and one of the things I love, and it has come through our research, there are well-established and data-based frameworks that have shown over time this is how one develops and these are the behaviors required to be effective so we know what it is we know how to measure it we have tools to develop it so there's no reason that people can't get there it is available and as you point out though it takes time if we look at someone like a Tiger Woods or any other professional athlete, they've spent much of their lives practicing. When they go home from work, quote, they're learning, they're growing, they're practicing new behaviors. It's not a nine to five job. And if you have already a 16 hour a day job, building time in for this practice is a difficult proposition. 
It is indeed. I know we're going to touch on that a little later as we talk about skill building. I certainly know from my own personal experience, I was fortunate enough uh, working for a consulting organization early in my career to get exposed to the fifth discipline and Senge's work Mm -hmm. and Chris Argus's work on systems dynamics and Mm -hmm. systems thinking. And I remember, you know, sitting in, if you will, the classroom setting and it seeming so obvious and Mm -hmm. then you know, going and trying to put it in practice, sitting at my desk, and it was hard. It took a lot of iteration to get Mm -hmm. to the point where I could begin to see patterns effectively. So couldn't agree more, and it does require a commitment, just like fitness in any other part of our Mm -hmm. uh, lives. You know, I'm working now with, I have a colleague, uh, Christoph Hanska, who is an expert in systems thinking, and he's going through our personal leadership development certification program, and he's actually building systems diagrams, even around his vision and values. So once people start to see systems like that, they see them everywhere and almost can't avoid them. But it's taken him years to get there. Yes. And I think that it illustrates very clearly the value of practice and, mm-hmm. and your ability to see patterns and, and, and how valuable that becomes in every walk of your life. Yeah. If you don't see patterns as an executive, you're not going to be a, a, an effective executive in a time that's transitioning this I completely agree. And in in fact, uh, it can be frustrating if you are an executive like that that sees patterns Mm -hmm. and then you find yourself in a a system where that has not been a valued competency. And uh, I certainly have had points in my career where I'm (laughs) like, hey, how come everybody isn't seeing this? Like, I think something's coming here. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, A, B, C, D, and then with the delay, E, right? And everybody's like, what? Yeah, so. Or um, you're wrong. You're right. We've seen these things before and nothing ever happened. Right, exactly. And you trigger an immune system response where you Mm -hmm. end up being rejected for being right, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's very dangerous for an organization. Well, and that's where the volume of change becomes the the issue. Where in the past you could have the autoimmune response and just kick Greg and Maureen out. Mm. Now that autoimmune response puts the company at risk. Absolutely. So actually, that's a great transition to the next uh, theme, which is around organizations needing to innovate who they are Mm -hmm. and what they offer. And this is all about evolving the DNA and the culture of a company to value disruption and innovation Mm -hmm. rather than trying to impose innovation on the organization. Mm -hmm. This involves, and always has for great companies, a focus on the needs of a broad range of stakeholders and a burning passion for you know, what I like to refer to as real big D diversity. It's mm-hmm. diversity of thought, not just the technical definition of diversity, although that is also important mm-hmm. in a company's workforce. Innovation is not a state of mind, in my mind. It's a <laughs> verb, right? You <laughs> use process you and leadership <laughs> as an ally in mm-hmm. doing innovation. You don't just, you know, today I will be 10% more innovative in my thinking. You know, that and Five bucks will buy you a Starbucks, but Mm -hmm. it's it's probably not going to make much of a difference. Uh, Anticipating skill mix changes, hiring and training for where the puck is going Mm -hmm. to be, and, and your talent will pull you in the right direction. So you hit on the diversity topic, and that is really important for me. And as you say, it's not counting the number of skirts versus pants or color shades in people's skin. It is the, while those things are also external evidence of, you can have 
a lot of people who may look different but think the same. So the importance of people with different worldviews, different perspectives is critical. And, and I saw some research recently and actually did an interview that will air early in 2020 with a researcher in the U.S. whose data suggested, and this is across the United States and across levels within organizations, only about half of the population is willing to follow a leader of a different gender. Only about half of the population is willing to follow a leader of a different ethnicity. Only half will follow someone of GLBT orientation. And only one third will follow someone of a different political persuasion. So if we look at the mix of an organization, there are a whole lot of leaders who will be less effective because followers have now decided that they're going to narrow the the diversity of people they're willing to follow. So in an environment where diversity is critical to the path to innovation, we live in a time in history, and this isn't exclusive to the U.S. This is the, the data I have in front of me right now, that we require diversity of thought and experience and background, and many people are excluding those people who see the world differently from the conversation. And I think that leads to an incredibly bad outcome. Yeah, it's a very interesting and insidious challenge inside of particularly large organizations because particularly if a quote-unquote follower chooses not to follow somebody because of their political persuasion Mm -hmm. or the color of their skin or their gender or their sexual preference, whatever it might be, they're not likely to volunteer that information to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just perform less or less effectively. And so you've got this insidious lack of performance and or Mm passive-aggressive behavior that's really hard to pick up on in, in large organizations. And so I think it points to the need for, you know, what we've seen is some investment in the last 10 to 15 years on these issues of unconscious bias, on mm-hmm. helping people grasp and hold on to a different set of values. I should Mm -hmm. be looking for somebody who's complementary Mm -hmm. to me, not identical to me. I should be looking Mm -hmm. for somebody who challenges my thinking and helping people build the confidence and build the, uh, if you will, the visibility to their unconscious bias is something that companies have to invest in if they don't want to experience the symptoms Mm -hmm. you're talking Mm -hmm. about. One of the challenges is this is the first year this data was collected. So I don't know if in our environment, we're actually seeing a significant improvement from the past. We'll know next year if it's getting better or where it's trending. But to your point, it is troubling to me that we're looking at such low numbers in a time where where what's required is much higher. I couldn't agree more. I think um, I think it's my prediction would be that the movement of the data over time will be inconsistent across dimensions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? One can certainly imagine, because the data in other realms supports it, that we're more polarized politically than we have been in a while. Mm-hmm. And we can debate the merits of that, but the reality is certainly there. The data is there to support mm-hmm. that we are more polarized, not that we've ever been. I don't think that's accurate, but certainly than we have been in a while. Mm-hmm. And so it wouldn't be surprising to see that maybe we've lost ground on that in the last couple of years, but we've maybe gained ground on other fronts. On the LGBT area, where we now ha- where marriage is legal. Mm-hmm. So probably 10 years ago, that number would have been much worse. And to your point, the, the politics have now dropped. 
Right, but I think the you know the 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 larger point that you're making is we have to be investing in, you know, dare I say, expanding people's consciousness on this, so that you have more and more people embracing the opportunity that diversity presents versus the perceived mm-hmm. risk that it might present. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of this, and you talk about the word unconscious bias, that we are overcoming some of our innate wiring and. Again, I am not a scientist in that space, but we all have, our brains are wired to protect us. And so if I see someone that looks like you and you're taller and stronger than me and that makes me fearful, then I'm going to pull back from you. If I see someone who looks like me and I I immediately gravitate toward, I'm safe with someone, and and I'm talking just physical appearance, it is also true in in thought process, then that's going to drive my behavior until I am conscious. I'm going to be reacting from pre-established wiring Mm -hmm. that is physiologically built in probably from early in in our species and so we as humans and especially as leaders need to be aware of that wiring and where what behaviors it's driving and unplug it and that's again where the practice comes up that I need to continue to notice when I'm doing this and it's often embarrassing when I see a bias that I didn't think I had. Absolutely. And and your point about uh, our brains and how they work is absolutely valid. I mean, you can go back mm-hmm. to Kahneman's work and see very clearly that there are, you know, there's two, there's basically two processing capabilities inside the brain. And one is very fast and very primal, and mm-hmm. the other one is very conscious and much, much more capable. But it does take discipline to not react to our primal response mm-hmm. to some stimuli mm-hmm. and bring it into the realm of, thoughtful and mm-hmm. make a decision and, mm-hmm. and that's a learned behavior mm-hmm. uh, because as you say we are you know we're protecting machines like we are wired to survive mm-hmm. right and, and that's a good thing until yes. it's not yes exactly so uh, switching on to uh, just really looking more specifically at this whole process of innovation inside of organizations I feel like one of the things that companies grapple with and I've seen companies do this really badly is they'll say we need to be more innovative and they'll create an innovation department and their mission will be Mm -hmm. to impose innovation on the rest of the company. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, sometimes asking an organization that you're measuring against a set of objectives to innovate creates an organization that now has to compete with its own objectives and that can Mm -hmm. also fail. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about you know about what you have seen really work mm-hmm. in organizations balancing this. You can't create a department to do innovation to a company. By the mm-hmm. same token, sometimes innovation can't happen inside of an operating business unit. They mm-hmm. need help. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to point to a couple of interviews because I feel ethically better talking about interviews that I can share versus clients I'm working with. So I interviewed both a senior executive at Procter & Gamble, who recently exited and ran one of these groups, and also the general counsel for Volvo Financial. Both of them have something that's akin to an innovation lab where they, uh, and I'll talk about Volvo, they came up with 10 problems, they worked with an incubator, they they brought people from Volvo Financial in, the general counsel was actually leading the conversation or the exploration of AI. So they brought in startups, that I believe they also brought 
brought in organizations that can help them scale. So so this creating of an ecosystem, there was a discrete amount of time that we're exploring these things, then we go off and implement. But we implement something that's been tested and incubated and can be then shared with the rest of the business whose main charge is to execute the business so you're not asking people to split their brains and 10% of their time they innovate and 90% of their time they work and I trust that different organizations have different approaches and and there are multiple ways to get there those that I've talked to recently have been really effective with this go off and do innovation with people who are whose expertise and whose ecosystem revolves around innovation and then work with the business to to bring that in and implement it and i don't know you've run innovation work within organizations is that consistent with what you've seen i've seen i've seen multiple models work mm-hmm. i think it has to happen in a way that is culturally sensitive mm-hmm. to the organization i spent a number of years at ford and there are two examples one of a of a, of a substantial failing and one mm-hmm. of a substantial success so the failing and there's a book about this is called car and mm-hmm. it talks about the original Ford Taurus. I think it was launched mm-hmm. in like 1984. Most successful vehicle launch in history. Okay. And they achieved it by creating a cross-functional team to work on the product. Okay. And they worked. They did car development in a way that had never been done before at Ford. The epitaph of this story is while the vehicle launch was very successful, within 10 years, the immune system of Ford had forced every single person on that team out of the company because, right, they never really grappled with this issue of integrating these new processes into the product development processes of Ford. And the other example is a much better one and a much longer lasting one, and that's the Ford F-150, which is the best-selling nameplate in history by Mm -hmm. far and continues to be to this day. That's a team who knows how to be intimate with their customer and innovates on a consistent basis, model after model after model now for 30, 40 years. Wow. So, so again, part of that is then closeness to the customer. Yes. And I think your other point and the key point is appropriate for the culture. Absolutely. That model may not work for GE or GM. Exactly. And I think, I think the answer is multiple approaches to innovation can work, mm-hmm. but you do have to really pay attention to how you're influencing the ecosystem, how you're measuring people's results, et cetera. So when we come back, I want to share one other model on what we talk about, the DNA of innovation. So we will be right back. You are with Greg Moran, Maureen Metcalf, and we are talking about the trends we are seeing for 2020 and beyond. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead 
identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Uh, Welcome back. And uh, we're uh, in a discussion right now talking about the DNA of organizations and how that relates to successful, sustainable uh, innovation. And, And Maureen, one of the things you talk about is this whole issue of DNA and culture that goes beyond just Mm -hmm. the window dressing of saying we care about innovation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Thank you, Greg. This is one of the things that that has really emerged as important to me, and it's about the alignment and comes from years of doing transformation consulting and seeing the negative impact if we don't get it right. So looking at as a leader, what do I value and how do I behave and making sure I have some alignment with where we're going as an organization and my behavior and then lining those up with the organizational elements of culture and systems and processes. So earlier on, we talked about systems mapping. If we look at what are the cultural components that that enforce or disturb systems efficiency and effectiveness and also the behavioral pieces because we are implementing so many changes at the same time each of those is bumping against the culture and bumping against the human expectations for any one job or any one person and so it is critical for the organization to continually revisit and realign to ensure that just simply people know what they need to do when they show up in the morning, that they have a culture that reinforces what we're asking them to do, that the things we're measuring them for and rewarding them for are aligned with what we've asked them to do. And it is easy to create misalignment as we're implementing new systems that are going to drive the organization forward, but our organizational agreements haven't yet evolved. How we evaluate people from a performance management perspective have not yet evolved and we send just mixed messages that at a minimum beyond frustrating people they just create drag in the system and inefficiency and in the worst case they cause attrition of the people we want to stay and in the process we slow down development we slow down productivity on all kinds of measures and we cost the organization a lot of money yeah, it's a great point. I can I can say resonates from my experience. I one of the organizations that I spent time at, and I'll keep their name off the uh, <laughs> off the uh, broadcast because it's really not about that unique organization. Mm-hmm. 
it's a it's a phenomenon I've seen elsewhere. Um, but they had a, a challenge where they were believing that the company needed to evolve and change. And so they were specifically targeting outside talent. Mm-hmm. And after a few years, they looked at the data and they found that when they hired somebody at the officer level or mm-hmm. above mm-hmm. from outside the company, their average tenure was under four years before they left the company, mm-hmm. which was problematic because you're spending a lot of money to bring folks in specifically with the mission to help you change the organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what they discovered is that these leaders were coming in and running into the immune system and realizing that this organization doesn't really want to change. The person who hired me said that's what they wanted, but nobody's told the rest of the organization. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. now I'm the enemy and this is not a great way to live, right? When you're just, you know, constantly mm-hmm. being told not to do the very thing that you were hired to do. Mm-hmm. And so it created this big mismatch. And at four years, the retention of these outside executives was under 25%. Wow. And I think I may have done leader onboarding for that organization. So we we saw the same thing in the, the autoimmune response. Is I like that term that it just, the organization didn't, adapt to the things they were asking well, so the individuals I, to do. I think it's a great opportunity to just kind of like, let's pull up and raise our aperture here and look at one of the ways that that needs to occur top down inside mm-hmm. an organization. Great. So one of the trends that's really come into clear focus in the last couple of years is this concept of, of companies uh, considering a much broader range of stakeholders mm-hmm. in their business models. And you have the traditional model of you're supposed to look out for shareholder interests first. And now you've mm-hmm. got you know senior leaders like Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan Chase mm-hmm. and many others mm-hmm. saying, yeah, I think that era is over. We've really got to look more broadly. And I would posit that Great organizations have always looked more broadly, mm-hmm. and you can find many, many examples of that. But as you point out in your in your discussion, sensitivity to this is increasing and expectations are rising. How can companies embrace this without disenfranchising their shareholders is kind of one piece mm-hmm. of the question. The second piece of the question is really what we were just talking about. How do you use that new context to inform your organization that we're thinking about success differently? So there are models like conscious capitalism that, that again, have been proven to be successful. And I, I really tend to prefer using models that have evidence of success. And they look at overall stakeholder satisfaction and how that drives profitability. So conscious capitalism is capitalism. It is about making a profit, but it's about doing it in a way that is sustainable long term. So I'm not foregoing maintenance until buildings collapse. I'm not over claiming profits as in think Enron and and I happen to be working in the utilities industry during that time and actually helping set up trading floors for energy and and watching things happen like not turning on the power generator until there was such a high demand that the price per hour went from something like $56 an hour to over $1,000 an hour. So the company that was selling the power made a lot of money. It caused a collapse of an industry. So 
again, the argument isn't don't make a profit. It is behaving in a way that is not sustainable. There's a bit that I can leverage and claim additional profits during a transition time that's healthy and overdoing that is unhealthy. Enron is the case study in my mind for that because I was in that industry and again saw personally a lot of good people lose opportunities because of the excesses in focus on profit. Yeah, that, honestly, Enron was followed by, you know, the mortgage uh, mm-hmm. uh, real estate crisis in 2008. Mm-hmm. And to your point, was really another example of just because a product can be designed that can make a company money doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it should be designed and marketed, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when it has, uh, call it, uh, non-proportional resp- you know, uh, impacts mm-hmm. on certain segments of, mm-hmm. of the population or the society in which those things occur. And some of the products that got developed in the you know mid 2000s you know had inordinate impact on segments of society that could ill afford those impacts and mm-hmm. that's how you get a really bad recession mm-hmm. uh, and some really painful impacts on people who were really not in a position to weather the storm mm-hmm. right the people who designed the products weathered the storm just fine yeah right but the uh, you know but the folks that uh, really felt the impact of that uh, it was it was a great example of a non-sustainable mm-hmm. business model being taken to its logical conclusion. And so your second part of that conversation was how do we make sure that we are, in essence, in agreement? And I think that really is a board level discussion in some ways. What are our guiding principles about how we operate, often done in conjunction with the CEO? But if, if a CEO and, and the top leadership is is employed by the board and the board is setting the tone, it has to happen at that level. I couldn't agree more. And there's so many great examples. Wells Fargo is another good one mm-hmm. where you had you know 5,000 people act in, these are one would assume not all of them woke up in the morning thinking I'm going to be willing to break the law to, to get my mm-hmm. bonus this yeah. year yeah. but 5,000 of them ultimately made that choice uh, this is a staggering That's a culture number. of something right well it's a culture of you know people people being put in a position where the mm-hmm. only way to succeed inside of the system that was mm-hmm. being created for them was to act in a way that was ultimately unethical mm-hmm. and uh, it does illustrate that people will respond to the systems we put mm-hmm. in place for them and mm-hmm. to your point at the board level we need to be putting in place structures that drive the behavior we ultimately want to mm-hmm. see from mm-hmm. our teams I know we like to think that bottom-up changes like that can happen, and there there may be a bottom-up, top-down, but it has to be top-down. Uh, certainly, they have to be enlisted in that. Uh, mm-hmm. Hierarchical organizations ultimately do have a big impact on people's behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us are just trying to get up in the morning and figure out how to take care of our families. Mm-hmm. And yep. inside of that context, right, the ethics can get blurry if the framework is not clear mm-hmm. and transparent. Mm-hmm. Especially in an environment where it's perceived as okay, I'll question myself. And there's a lot of research that says as humans, we tend to follow the the hierarchy. Absolutely. Um, because there's too much at risk for us, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So uh, just transitioning to then the much more tactical side of that, with this level of disruption that occurs, not only because the zeitgeist is shifting and you're getting a different focus, but also because you've got 
disruption that's occurring at a business model level. You have this big issue of skill mismatch. Mm-hmm. And it's very common in the enterprise world. We're mm-hmm. seeing it, you know, right yeah, now yeah. in our market here in in Central Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result of that, you get lots of job loss, expensive restructuring, heavy reskilling investment. How can companies address this more proactively with both investment and culture change? So, one, I need to know back to the strategic planning. Where are we going? Where do we think with the highest probability we need to be? And in some cases, then it's just the math. I know where we're going. Now, we add into that some things that increase the complexity. So integrating machine learning, robotic process automation will change the job composition and the World Economic Forum uh, did an interesting report at the end of 2018 looking at how many jobs would change. And unfortunately, people in the more routine jobs who also make less money are less likely to be retrained. So the enterprise is certainly going to invest in their top talent, top being most expensive and biggest contribution to the ROI. The people who keep the organization running often don't get that investment. And that ends up then being a community investment or our government social structure. And I personally am concerned that if this rate of change does in fact materialize that we're talking about, we will see for a period of time significant disenfranchisement of a lot of people that, as you say, want to get up and go to work and do their jobs and support their families and contribute. And If we are not minding how that transition is managed, many of those people who who want more than anything else to do a good job won't have that opportunity without some social support. Absolutely. And we've been in this movie before with the Industrial Revolution and uh, other disruptive moments in, in kind of our history. So moving on to kind of the next uh, uh, trend that you talked about, which is around digital transformation, both driving and destroying value. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that I really want to hone in on in this space is that this concept of how companies go through digital transformation and often don't succeed. It's a hard change. Yeah. And... You know, one of the things that I, I thought about when I was reading it is like, honestly, those num- the numbers that you observe, which is mm-hmm. digital transformation fails like 70% of the time, is not that different from other types of right. transformation that I've seen throughout my mm-hmm. career. Are we just seeing the latest instantiation of this or is there something really unique and specific about digital transformation that makes it hard in your view? The only thing I think that is different about digital transformation is people don't yet understand it. You know, if we talk about implementing an enterprise-wide software system, we've been doing that for over a decade now. Most people in the job of doing that work at least have some sense of what's required and how it looks now and now how effective it'll be. The data still says the probability of not achieving our business results is somewhere between 60 and 80 percent, depending on which data. So... The only thing I think that's different, we still have to understand the problem, create a structured plan, work the plan, measure it, have sponsorship, have the discipline to not take our eye off the ball when the next shiny thing happens. So all of the stuff that worked for implementing an enterprise software system is still required for our different kinds of disruption. 
Yeah, I think it's a great observation. Just because it's a new type of transformation doesn't mean that the disciplines we've spent decades building up mm-hmm. won't serve us well mm-hmm. as we work through these types of uh, changes. I want to focus last on, you know, maybe something that is the most important piece of this, uh, although we could debate that, and that, but mm-hmm. that's the human side of this, mm-hmm. like what mm-hmm. it feels like to be going through this. And there's both a leader aspect to this. Mm-hmm. What's the role mm-hmm. of a leader in helping organizations and people build resilience through this, mm-hmm. uh, this pace of change? But also at an individual level, how mm-hmm. do we take ownership of mm-hmm. our own resilience? And so let's just cover both of those. First of all, at the leadership level, you talk about the importance of leaders helping employees connect to their work, both at a values level and a customer impact level. Why is this so important in your mind in terms of this resilience point? I believe that we as humans are largely driven by doing something that has purpose. So yes, just thinking Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I need my basic needs met and I would like my job to do that. We live in a world where many, for many of us, we have the luxury of having those basic needs met. So we're now driven by a sense of purpose. And if I am doing a job that happens to meet my economic needs and give me a sense of purpose, my level of engagement and impact go up dramatically. And the Gallup work says, if I don't have that, my probability of being engaged is like 8%. And if engagement is correlated with economic returns, then we need people to be engaged. And it's hard to be engaged when I'm absolutely exhausted, not eating properly, not taking care of myself physically, when I emotionally feel like people are beating me up all day, and I wonder why I'm here. So it's the physical, emotional, and mental health that we're looking at much higher levels of anxiety than we've seen in the history that I know of. So I can manage, to a degree, the amount of sleep I get. I can manage my own thought process. And I think we see tools now like mindfulness meditation that used to be in the bastion of those new age people or whatever term you put on it that are now pretty mainstream that many of my friends are doing some kind of meditation. They're doing some kind of yoga or have. They're doing some kind of breathing exercises, basic stuff that allows us to navigate the level of stress that happens. And if we're not doing that, we are likely to be sick and long-term, physically, seriously ill. And short-term, anytime I'm in that loop of over-impacted by stress, the executive function in my brain goes offline. So if someone comes running in here and says something's on fire and my brain goes offline, my probability of doing good work is low. So as leaders, we have to create environments where people have the opportunity to take the time to reflect, to go for a walk, to manage the stress, to go eat healthy food during the day. Just the basic things that humans require to be effective. And it seems like we have often lost sight of that in favor of productivity. So I think the message there is we have to own our own productivity And similarly, as leaders, Mm -hmm. we have to create the context in which people can operate that way. And we've all all had the chance to work for the boss that used Mm -hmm. us as the outlet for their stress. Uh Uh, And we've got to be better (laughs) than that as leaders. uh, And we've got to take ownership ourselves. So now moving beyond the topics of just kind of 
how we handle the human side of disruption mm-hmm. and the organizational side, you kind of finished your discussion with a very macro level contextual point around mm-hmm. disruption. And that's around this issue of sustainability at really at a planet level, at a, at a mm-hmm. macro system mm-hmm. level. And, uh, I, you know, obviously that is a really, really big topic and we won't be able to hit mm-hmm. it in a lot of detail today. But as you pointed out earlier in, in your piece and in this uh, context, stakeholders are increasingly calling upon ac- calling for action on the sustainability mm-hmm. front. What's step one for leaders and companies in your mind? You know, one is just be aware of the impact we have, do an audit, and create a sustainability plan that we actually intend to deliver on. And it's interesting, again, that I get to do these interviews. And so one was with the president of Lumos Energy. He's the executive director of Indigenous Clean Social Enterprise and founder of the Delphi Group and board chair of the Global Series. And lots of words to say during that interview, he talked extensively about sustainable energy being affordable, that we have, we have had the belief that we can't move out of what we're doing because the new stuff isn't yet well enough to develop to be economically affordable and uh, we're going to have all kinds of crises. At least according to this gentleman whose work is in this space, they are at some level of scale delivering renewable energy in Canada and into the U.S., in a way that is cost effective. So I have hope that we may not be there yet, but that's one of the many variables. As we're looking at a technology revolution, we have to be able to think our way through. And there are solutions already to a lot of the challenges should we choose to do them. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I'll tell you, one of my pet peeves is is really this this habit that we have of debating the data so that we don't have to act. Yeah. And particularly in this space, I'm tired of the data debate, mm-hmm. right? At a macro level, how could you possibly argue with the premise that we'd be better off long-term if we were impacting our planet less? Right, It yeah. seems like a very obvious mm-hmm. conclusion. Mm-hmm. And if you accept that basic premise that we're more sustainable over a longer period of time in partnership with our planet, mm-hmm. if we impact it less, if we use more renewables and fewer non-renewables, then it really becomes an act of will to mm-hmm. say, how do we move faster to find ways to do that? And I think we've got great examples uh, of where the time frame for, for example, the electrification of the uh, automotive world mm-hmm. was presumed to be a lot longer until Elon Musk came along. And we can argue mm-hmm. the merits of Tesla as a company and the merits of Elon Musk as a leader, but he took what was going to be 20 years and accelerated it pretty dramatically through sheer force of will and a willingness to try mm-hmm. harder. You know, they're, they're just basic things, and, and this isn't changing the planet, but the the water bottle issue. You carry, I assume, I, I've probably seen it, a, a renewable bottle, not a, you know, buy plastic bottles. We go through the airport we dump it when we go through we fill it up we fill it up all over the place we as individuals can make decisions that are easy now you have to wash the thing on occasion but short of that it's not inconvenient 
you do also have to, at times, when you forget to empty it, drink the entire <laughs> bottle in the security <laughs> line at the airport. And I've lived that moment, right? <laughs> which is somewhat yep. concerning when you're getting on a 12-hour flight and you know you're going to be competing for bathroom space. But uh, I agree with you 100%. There are easy decisions that we can make. There are easy habits that we can mm-hmm. model for our children, for our colleagues that uh, can make a difference. And so I love the fact that you raised that point. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great way to kind of wrap up today's discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, any final thoughts as we wrap up, uh, Maureen? You know, for our listeners, one, thank you as we're entering in a new decade, right? So 2020, and it is rife with disruption. It is also rife with amazing opportunities. The idea that we could potentially cure big diseases and solve food challenges across the planet. It's an amazing time to be alive, and we need to be more conscious about how we impact one another, our communities overall, and our planet. And my hope is when we exit 2020, we look back on this and and hundreds of other interviews, and we're delighted with what we accomplished over the decade. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you uh, here today. Greg, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your wisdom in structuring our interview. Happy 2020 to everyone. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.